morning, and uh, hope you got enough rest last night after the big party. We're going to uh, continue our study through the Minor Prophets, and we're going to cover Nahum, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah. We're over halfway through now through the Minor Prophets. There are 12 of these shorter prophets that were written for us. And um, these three that we're going to look at today really are a little bit more obscure than the ones that we're normally used to looking at, like Daniel and Jonah and Isaiah and things like that. And so we want to get right in and and, uh, study these today. Before we we begin, though, let's uh, have a word of prayer and ask God's blessing. Father, we thank You for this uh, time that we can take apart from our lives our lives and and from the busyness of our weeks to reflect on what you have done for us through Jesus Christ and we're thankful for how you have inscripturated your word for us that you have written it down so that we can have it for all the ages and for even the future generations can learn from it and and um, understand more about you and what you expect of your people and we pray that you'd help us to understand these three books as we study them, and that you would be honored in our application of them in our own lives, that we would not simply be hearers, but doers also. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you can open up to Nahum chapter 1. We'll start there in just a second. Uh, But before we look into the passage itself, I'd like to just give a little bit of background of where Nahum shows up. Nahum prophesied around the middle of the 7th century and uh, is about 650 B.C. So this is Nahum right here. So you have the Israel falling, the north north Samaria um, falling here in 722 B.C. They had been led into captivity. And then uh, this is where Nahum's prophesying. Before Judah had fallen, he comes on the scene and... uh, he basically asks the question, it's as simple as this, where are you, God? Where are you? And so we come to our um, our theme here that's written down for you, and that is that God is still jealous for His people and ferociously protective of them. Therefore, they need not fear, for God is stronger than their enemies and, and will strip them of their strength. Assyria, as you remember, is one of... Israel's greatest enemies, one of Judah's greatest enemies. And obviously Jonah had come on the scene uh, earlier and he was frustrated that he had to go and preach to these Ninevites, or these, uh, yeah, these Ninevites who are Assyrians. Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. And he was frustrated that he had to do that because he wanted to see God's judgment be poured out on these wicked people. Now Nahum comes on the scene and um, and he asks, where are you, God? How can... How can we be uh, being destroyed by these wicked people? We saw, we saw our northern neighbors destroyed, and now it seems like they're they're coming in closer to us. And and uh, obviously Babylon comes on the scene later on and and becomes their their uh, their foe. And uh, so the theme comes. And we can see it really in the first chapter in verses 2 through 5. And as I read these verses, I want you to listen um, for the way that Nahum reinforces his message. And he does it by drawing out God's 
desire for his people, his zeal for their direction. And uh, you'll see some, some language that we've heard before, primarily in the Exodus. First chapter of Nahum, verses 2 through 5. A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and he reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. In whirlwind and storm is his way, and clouds are the dust beneath his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers, Bashan and Carmel wither, the blossoms of Lebanon wither, the mountains quake because of him, and the hills dissolve. Indeed, the earth is upheaved by his presence, the world and all the inhabitants in it. Did you hear that language from Exodus? That God is jealous for His people? You remember when, when uh, Israel was basically captured by Egypt and were their slaves? God said, I want to make My name known and I want to continue My promise through My people. And, and there, was a, um, there was a sense in which God was jealous. And then we see in verse 3 that He was slow to anger. Uh, language that we've heard before in Exodus chapter 34, I believe. That God is slow to anger. And then we see that He's great in power in verse, verse 3 as well, and full of justice. And so in verses 4 and 5, then, then Nahum, we see, lists out God's mighty acts, that God is a powerful God. <clears throat> that He rides on the clouds and dries up the seas and so on. And, uh, and that's exactly the, the type of God that we see in Exodus. That He is a powerful God. He cares about His people, but He also is a powerful God and He's able to accomplish whatever He wants. And so Nahum is saying here that God will again save the same way He did back then. And um, He's also doing here, not only is He pointing us back to the Exodus, but He's also taking a little jab at the Assyrian gods. That, that unlike their gods, our God is great in power. And we see the point of all this in verse 7. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and He knows those who take refuge in Him. But with an overflowing flood, He will make a complete end of its sight and will pursue His enemies into darkness. We see that God is greater than Judah's enemies. And so Judah doesn't need to fear. They, they feel like their world is crumbling all around them. Israel has fallen. Their, their enemies are coming in. And even in... 701 B.C. is where Israel, uh, Jerusalem gets attacked. Um, they, they were able to stand and, and uh, remain despite that attack. And so, so they feel like their enemies are coming in all around them. And Nahum says, calm down. Okay, God is in control. God is stronger than all of your enemies. And God will eventually strip Nineveh of any strength that they may have boasted in. Um... The entire book, though, of Nahum, and uh, I would encourage you to read it. I think it's it's just the three chapters. You have the outline on the back of how how it's set up, but it's three chapters, and, and it talks about God's grace for Judah, about how God will deliver His people. Look at chapter one, verse fifteen. Behold, on the mountains, the feet of Him who brings good news, who announces peace. Celebrate your feasts, O Judah. Pay your vows, for never again will the wicked one pass through you. He is cut off completely. So, Nahum says, don't 
fear. God is greater than your enemy. He has great things in store for you. And the rest of the book really is talking about how Nineveh will fall. And they do end up falling in 612 B.C. So right around here, they fall. But then that's when Babylon comes on the scene and now Babylon's their their number one enemy. And that's who eventually takes them here in 586. So what we can learn from Nahum is that our God is always jealous and protective of His people. Whether it's the people of Israel or whether it's His church, God cares about His people. And so whatever type of trouble or distress or, or illness or anything that seems like an enemy that seems to be crushing in around you, you can be confident that God is protective of His people in the sense that He will not allow anything to happen that is not in line with His purposes. You never feel like the people of Judah felt like we are orphans in some way. That that God has... He he had an idea to help us back then, but now He's abandoned us. And now we're kind of left on our own to, to, to make ends meet. We're never left alone. And our enemies are never in control. And so Nahum teaches us that. Chapter 1 talks about how God is greater than His enemies. And then chapter 2 talks about how Nineveh appears to be strong and powerful. And that, and then chapter 3, how God is, is against them. And this is a theme that comes up throughout the Bible that it seems like that evil is winning. Remember when John the Baptist was in prison? And um, he sent some messengers to Jesus and he said, see if this is the one. He was discouraged. I mean, he, he had stood up and made a stand for this coming Messiah and he feels like that evil is winning. He's stuck there in prison because Herod had put him there and later he would be, as you know, beheaded by Herod. And um, yet here, here Jesus is preaching to these vast crowds and performing great miracles, but apparently he's not bringing upon the crowd these judgments that that John the Baptist would expect. I mean, if this is the Messiah that was talked about in Isaiah, then what we find is that yes, he does perform great miracles, but also he's he's a a Messiah of judgment that he comes and, and brings judgment on these people. And so, where is this happening? Why hasn't Jesus denounced this Herod that's put me in jail? Turn to Matthew chapter 11. Jesus answers his question. Why hasn't he come on the scene and and rescued John the Baptist? Matthew chapter 11. Here, John's disciples come to Jesus and they say, Are you the expected one or should we look for someone else? In verse 3 and then verse 4, Jesus answers. And He said to them, Go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who does not take offense at Me. Here, Jesus replies by quoting Scripture. That's why you see a bunch of the words there in all capital letters. He quotes the Old Testament. He goes back to Isaiah and he says, you see, the Messiah, was he was it was promised that He would be the one that would come and perform these mighty acts. Okay, so, so you disciples, go back and tell John, tell him that these things are happening, that the blind are receiving their sight. 
When else does this happen? Except if God has come to the earth. But what John the Baptist would have expected was the rest of that passage in Isaiah which talked about Him coming in judgment on His enemies. In Isaiah chapter 35, Jesus doesn't mention the divine retribution that was supposed to come on these people. And so how could, how could this be the Messiah? Jesus only mentions this one aspect that the blind are receiving their sight. And what His point was is that this is not the time for judgment. Okay, I am the Messiah, but, but what the Old Testament scholar would not have understood is that Jesus was coming in two parts. There was two parts to His coming. It was the same man, but the one part was to show His mighty acts, to show who He was, and then there would be a delay. We understand this now on this side of the cross. That there would be a delay till He comes back a second time. And that's when all of those prophecies in Isaiah will be fulfilled with the divine retribution where God comes down in judgment through His Son, Jesus Christ. And so what he's saying to John is, look closely. Okay, These promises that were there in the Old Testament, they're, they're, they're coming. They're, they're here. And what I'm doing fulfills the Scripture exactly. Now, the judgment hasn't come, but, but what you need to do is trust in Me. Okay, Just like the people in Judah for Nahum. Don't fear. Okay, What you're looking for is that God has promised and it will happen. If it feels like you are losing, that is, as a Christian, you are losing and, and evil is winning, look ahead. Now, John wouldn't ultimately see that promise come to pass. We likely will not see that promise in this lifetime. We have to wait for Christ to come back and to, to bring His judgment. You see, God is just in His judgment. And although at times it seems like He's not there, at times it seems like the evil is winning. God is faithful to His people and there will come a day when all of His tormentors will be tormented. God will demonstrate His goodness in that day. And so, Nahum, we can say with Nahum in Nahum chapter 1, verse 7, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and He knows those who take refuge in Him. Any questions or comments on this book. You can turn back to Habakkuk or if you have questions on Nahum, I'll take those. Alright, Habakkuk's the next book in your Old Testament. Habakkuk prophesies only 40 years after Nahum. He's in uh, 610 B.C. So let's put him up here. Back at six ten, so we're still after we're after the um, the fall of Israel, but before the fall of Judah. And um, the difference here is that Assyria is no longer their enemy, and now it's it's Babylon. And um, so the what we find is that that um, the threat is not necessarily on the outside. It's actually internal. That there's all this wickedness going on inside of Judah. Habakkuk is concerned about it, and so we see his concern in chapter one, verse two. How long, O Lord, will I call for help and you will not hear? I cry out to you, violence, and yet you do not save. Okay, his point is, 
there is all sorts of injustice going on even among your own people. When are you going to come down in judgment on these wicked people of yours? Okay, so he's not so concerned about the enemies outside. He's concerned about the people within. There's all this injustice. There seems to be uh, no concern about what you, what you value most. And so God replies, listen, don't worry. Justice is going to come. But the only thing is, is the justice that God is going to bring, and we'll see this here in just a second, is not the type of justice that Habakkuk would expect. It would actually come from another nation. We see it in chapter 5. Look among the nations. I'm, I'm sorry, chapter 1, verse 5. I heard some turning and, and that shouldn't have had to turn for a couple of verses there. Chapter 1, verse 5. Look among the nations. Observe. Be astonished. Wonder. Because I'm doing something in your days you would not believe if you were told. For behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that fierce and impetuous people who march throughout the earth to seize dwelling places which are not theirs. The Chaldeans there in verse 6 are also known as whom? The Babylonians, exactly. And so this is kind of the, the, the riddle that Habakkuk has. Okay, We have internal problems. We definitely are not living as we should. Habakkuk saying, as a whole, our people of Judah are not living as we should. So God, you need to come in judgment. So God replies here in verse 5 and 6, and He says, all right, Habakkuk, I'm going to answer. Don't worry, justice will come, but it's not coming the way that you would expect. It's actually coming from a wicked nation. And uh, Habakkuk is just perplexed. How can a holy God use a nation more wicked than us to judge us? I mean, I understand that we need to be judged, but not by somebody more wicked than we. Judge them. Then judge us, but do it some other way. And so we have this long theme here that that I've uh, written out there, there for you. God is sovereign over even the actions of the wicked. For even in their wickedness, they serve God's purpose. However, God is not indicted for evil Himself, for they will be judged for their own wickedness in due time. Thus, the people of God should patiently wait and trust in their God and worship Him. Now, that's a long theme, but, but it's really packed with a lot of theology in this book. And if you've ever questioned God's justice, it's a good place to go and, and find answers. Or at least find solace in knowing that God is ultimately in control. And, and the other reason it's so long is because when you talk about God's sovereignty and wickedness in the same sentence, you need to explain it because we, we never want to attribute uh, guilt or responsibility to God uh, in such a way that, that He would be um, condemned for doing evil because God does no evil. Now, um, the best way to understand this book is to look at the outline on the back of your sheet because what this is is a conversation between Habakkuk and God and it goes back and forth and you don't often you don't often see the difference between who's talking so you you need to understand how how it's going here it doesn't say okay and Habakkuk said this and then the Lord said this and so what we have is in first verses 2 through 4 you have Habakkuk saying God how can you disregard sin all right and so the problem here is that Judah had been behaving violently and Habakkuk is calling out for justice. And then verses 5-11, through 11, the book 
progresses some more and God answers the question. He says, I will not disregard sin. In fact, I will judge sin, but it will come through the Chaldeans, through the Babylonians. Now, in Nahum, God had promised that He would protect His people, that He would protect them from this wicked group of Assyrians, that ultimately He would would win. But here, He says that you're going to be destroyed through them. This uh, will be something that I accomplish through these wicked people. I'm going to accomplish my purpose of justice to you through these wicked people. And so we see in verse 6 that God indeed is the one bringing up the army. Let's read that again. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans. Okay, this this would have been uh, just a, 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 an abhorrent statement to the people of Judah. They would have hated to hear such such words that God would actually raise up the Chaldeans. How could that be? So, because that's not the answer, Habakkuk's expecting, he responds. He responds in verses 12 through chapter 2, 1. Let's read verses 12 and 13. And he says, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We will not die. You, O Lord, have appointed them to judge, and you, O Rock, O Rock, have established them to correct. Your eyes are too pure to approve evil, and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. Why do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? Habakkuk recognizes, yes, we we are not perfect. As a country, we are not perfect. But but we're certainly more, more righteous than the Chaldeans, aren't we? How can you look with favor on these people who deal treacherously? Why would God act in this way? This is really much of the same thing that Job was dealing with. You remember? The question again on the table was, how can God be both good and sovereign over a universe where evil exists? If we have this world that's full of evil, then how can God be both good and sovereign? That's the question that's often asked. Either He's good and not sovereign, or He's sovereign and not good. But you can't have both. But what we learn in the Scriptures and in Job is that God is both good and sovereign and there's an evil world. So there's got to be an answer for this. And to make matters worse in this whole paradoxical situation, understanding of it, um, God's actually using wicked people to accomplish His good. And so God responds to Habakkuk. Habakkuk is completely confused. How could this possibly be? Chapter 2, verse 2. Then the Lord answered me and said, Record the vision and inscribe it on tablets that the one who reads it may run. What God is saying is, this: what I'm about to tell you, Habakkuk, is very important, not only for you, but also for the people of Judah and apparently for us because it's still recorded for us even to today that God inscripturated, He inspired it so that we would still have it. So record this because what I'm about to say is very important to what you need to understand about my relationship to using wicked people. And verse 3, For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It ha- time. It hastens towards the goal and it will not fail. Though it tarries, wait for it, for it will certainly come. It will not delay. Well, for Habakkuk, he's simply supposed to wait. 
Habakkuk, just wait for my answer. Here's the answer in verse 4. Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by his faith. The rest of the chapter is about judgment of those who are puffed up. But God doesn't wipe everyone away, either the people of Judah or the people of Babylon. Rather, He says those who are just, those will live by faith. And so here's what it means to be just. It is those who live, those who have faith in me and my purposes. That's, those are the people who are just. In other words, even though God brings judgment, not everybody's going to be treated the same. Habakkuk thought it was just going to be, okay, we're just going to wipe the slate. Just all of Judah is going away. But he says, no. There's actually going to be a remnant of people who are, whom I will protect. Those who are faithful will live. And when he says faithful, it just means that those who, are, who put their faith in, in me. So even if it looks unfair now, like everyone is being judged for the sins of some of the people, God's saying, just wait. The faithful will be saved. And that's exactly what we see here in this captivity here of Judah. That most of the people do die because of their sin and are judged because of their sin and they are judged by these wicked Babylonians. But there are people, there is a remnant of people who, who are protected because they have put their faith in God. And what he's saying to Habakkuk is simply, listen, it may not look very clear. Even during the captivity that, that God is saving these people, that wasn't really a great salvation. In other words, not talking about spiritual salvation here, I'm talking about physical salvation. When they're, when they're taken up to Babylon in captivity, that's not the best place to be. That's not the type of salvation they were looking for. And yet God says, don't worry about that, okay? Because there's coming a day when all of the things will be made right. When all of the balances will make sense to you. But at this point, in this life, all you need to do is believe in Me. And believe in My promises. And so no, it's no wonder that you've probably heard this verse before in the New Testament. In fact, Paul records it two times. He points back to this. The righteous will live by faith. Romans 1.17 in Galatians 3.11. And then the writer of Hebrews, who um, possibly could be Paul as well, also quotes it in Hebrews 10.38. And Paul's argument is this, no matter who you are, it doesn't matter. The way that you get justified, the way that you can stand righteously before God is to have faith. Okay? Because God requires perfection. He requires that you do not sin at all. So how could we ever do that? God says, well, I understand you can't do that. And so what I'll take in place of perfection is this. Simply believe in Me. Believe in the written revelation that I've given to you. For us, that is Jesus Christ. We know that this Messiah is Jesus Christ and Him crucified and resurrected. And so we have uh, hope here in the midst of struggle. And... Um, then in chapter 3, final chapter, Habakkuk responds in praise to God. When he recognizes that, you know what, it's, it's not my understanding. Okay, It wasn't the way that I would have done it. But ultimately, I can't go, call God's justice or His goodness into question. And so let's read his conclusion after he considers these things in chapter 3, verse 17. 
though the fig tree should not blossom, and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail, and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold, and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exult in the Lord, I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength, and He has made my feet like hinds feet, and makes me walk on my high places. What a powerful confession of trust we have here from Habakkuk. He doesn't say, God, I will follow you as long as you keep giving me stuff, or as long as I can have my health, or as long as people like me, or as long as I'm moving up to a better position in the workplace. No. He says, even if all my wealth is taken away, even if my body is rippled through with cancer, even if my coworkers persecute me, if all other people turn to follow a false god, I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. Because I trust that His promises are true. From a nearsighted, earthly perspective, it doesn't make sense. But when we see it from an eternal perspective, it does. And so we trust in God in all of it. That God is going to accomplish whatever He has promised. And praise God that we are not in control of our lives. Praise God that we do not have final say in what happens. Because certainly we would make a mess of things. And we would not do things as God does. Any questions or comments on Habakkuk? You would do well to take some time and and just... uh, Read through this with the conversation in mind that you have there in the back of your handout. Conversation that's going on between God and and Habakkuk can help you solidify some some things that you know to be true about God from other parts of Scripture. Any questions? All right, Zephaniah, the next book in your Old Testament. Zephaniah actually prophesied before Habakkuk. So he's in 640. Zephaniah. So we're still between the two falls of Israel and Jerusalem. And uh, he prophesies, prophesies around the same time as, um, as Jeremiah here, just to give you a perspective. I believe these are the only four prophets that, that prophesy um, during or in between these two exiles. Jeremiah actually, I think, uh, prophesies continuing on into the exile. We'll get to him next week, actually. The theme of Zephaniah is, is repent for the day of God's judgment is near. It's, it's very simple as far as its, um, its main point. You see the, the uh, outline in the back of your handout that the day of the Lord is near. And because it's near that we need to repent or specifically the people of Judah need to repent, and that God will save a remnant. So this really goes along with what we have seen in Habakkuk, that listen, don't fear. God's not just going to wipe out everybody. He's going to save those who are willing to trust Him. But what we find in Zephaniah is that it points to a, a, a day in, in the future. The day is still future for us. That is the day of the Lord, the day of God's judgment and His blessing. We've talked about this before, but the idea of the day of the Lord is similar to the Jewish day on the calendar. Their day started at 
sunset. So their day actually started with darkness. And then when it came to our morning, that, that was the end of their day. So it finished with light. That's exactly how the day of the Lord will be in the end times. It will start with judgment, which is what? What is that? Darkness, darkness which is what, what part of history? What actually happens during that period of darkness? Tribulation. Tribulation. Battle of Armageddon. Okay, that's the time of judgment. That's the first part of the day of the Lord. And then it continues on with the day with the light, okay, with with brightness, with with glory. What what time period is that going to be? Okay, the millennial reign, the one thousand year reign of Jesus Christ. And so that whole period between the time of Christ's coming, when he that is his the rapture of his saints, all the way until the end of the millennium, that is the period, the day of the Lord. Starts with judgment, ends in blessing. Look at Zephaniah chapter 1, verses 4 through 6. You can see that God is coming to judge false gods. So I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I will cut off the remnant of Baal from this place. And the names of the idolatrous priests along with the priests. And those who bow down on the housetops to the hosts of heaven. And those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear to Milcom and those who have turned back from following the Lord, and those who have not sought the Lord or inquired of Him. Since these gods are not real, their judgment cannot come on them specifically, but they have to come on the worshipers of these false gods. And uh, so we see this message to the people of Judah that, that God's going to give His attention to those who follow after them. Look at chapter 2, verse 3. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the earth, who have carried out His ordinances. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Perhaps you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. For Gaza will be abandoned, and Ashkelon a desolation. Ashdod will be driven out at noon, and Ekron will be uprooted. What are these cities mentioned here in chapter 2, verse 4? Anyone know? These are The only city that's missing here is Gath, which was... Philistines, one of the five Philistine cities. I think Gath had already fallen at this time. And uh, so what God is saying is, now I'm going to point my attention to the rest of the world who follows after these false gods. But it's not only a day of, of wrath, it's also a day of salvation. Look at chapter 3, verse 9. For then I will give to the people purified lips that all of them may call on the name of the Lord to serve Him shoulder to shoulder. From beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my worshipers, my dispersed ones, will bring my offerings. Look down to verse 14. Shout for joy, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away His judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel... The Lord is in your midst, and you will fear disaster no more. Zephaniah here is pointing to a time that is still future for them. That is, time that's still future for us. A time when God will bring in both Jew, verses 14 and 15, and Gentile, verses 9 and 10. He will bring them all together, and they will be standing shoulder to shoulder, and they will be made up of people who have trusted in God, who have actually put their trust in God. 
And so what we learn in Zephaniah is that, yes, he is an avenging God. He will come down in judgment on those who follow after false gods, but he's also a God of mercy. And one of the things that becomes apparent as you read through the Old Testament that is really kind of confusing to the Old Testament saint is that God is both a God of wrath and He's a God of mercy. And those things don't seem to mix, do they? That either He can be a God of wrath or He can be a God of mercy, but how could He be both? And so we see these two tracks running side by side in the Old Testament and God's coming in, in wrath, but God will save. Okay, God, God is coming down in judgment, and yet God has provided a way. How could these two tracks work together? And yet, when we stand on this side of the cross, we see where those tracks meet. We saw where those tracks met at the cross, where we see both God's wrath being poured out on His Son, and at the very same time, we see God's mercy being poured out on us. And so now when we look back on it, we say, wow, what a great God. Now I see why those things were there in the Old Testament. Where the Old Testament saint had to look at it and simply believe in faith that God was both a God of wrath, that He would come in judgment, and He was also a God of mercy. And so when we properly understand this book, or when we properly understand God's mercy and His wrath, it will lead us to fear God more than we fear the world, like Nahum talks about. It will help us to accept that God is in control and not to love the world like Habakkuk instructs us and to glory in our God like Zephaniah instructs us. And so, um, we're going to go from here, take a break from the minor prophets for a while. We'll come back to the last three and... um, But before we do that, we're going to move on to some of the major prophets. Jeremiah will be next week. See the sad deportation of the people being prophesied. And and yet at the same time, Jeremiah will give us much to be thankful for, much to rejoice about. Any questions or comments on these three minor prophets we looked at today? All right, we're in week 20 of 26 through our study of the Old Testament. We'll move right from there into our study of the New Testament and um, get a good survey of all these books. Hopefully these have been helpful to you. Let's bow together for prayer and um, we'll be dismissed. Father, we are amazed at Your grace and Your plan and how You've worked out everything according to Your good purposes. And we admit that at times we do question Your justice. We look at even the world around us. Even on this side of the cross, we look at the world and we see all sorts of injustices that are happening in the world. It seems like Your people are losing. But we know that like the wheat and the tares, that they both grow up together and at the final judgment, they will all be harvested and they will be separated into piles. And the, um, the one will be burned up and judged because of their sin. And the other pile will be preserved and be, be able to share in your glory and your presence forevermore. And although sometimes we don't see that clearly, we pray that you'd help us to get uh, an eternal perspective of what you're doing 
we would love to have all the answers. We would love to know exactly why you do certain things. But, but because we can't, we pray that you'd help us to trust you and to learn as much as we can about your mind and how you desire things to happen. And we pray that through this talk of judgment and this considering uh, of your wrath and how we do not want to be a part of it, we pray that it would lead us to more faithfulness to you, that we would obey you more than we have before, and that we would be searching for sin in our own lives so that we can eliminate it. We pray that as a body of Christ that we would be doing the same within our own midst, that we would be helping others in that regard and allowing them to see our frailties, our sinfulness, our obstinance toward you. And uh, we pray that you'd help us to have teachable spirits so that when we are approached about our sin or false understanding of the truth, that we would respond because we want to please you in every respect. May you reveal for us our hidden faults and go with us now as we uh, seek to serve you as you deserve to be served. We pray for the service to follow, that you would be honored in it, that we would worship you as the God that you are, and that we would uh, be able to say after having been together today that you are honored because of our hearts being engaged in the worship that we enjoyed together. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.